Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nervoretti. I'm Stephen Robles and we're excited to have a second episode with guest Elisa Childers. Thank you so much for coming back and uh, being on the Free Mind Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's good to be with you guys. Yeah. So Lisa, we talked a little bit last time about, uh, I think you did a review on Lisa Gunger's book. And, you know, I've been a big Gunger fan for years. And in so many ways, I personally resonate with their music. They've been Whenever I talk about, you know, just great Christian artists, I'm like, man, there's some great Christian artists out there. You got to check out these guys. You got to check out Gunger and, you know, many others. But yeah, um, I resonate with them in a lot of ways, really, just their their challenges with the church, their their approach to art and just thinking outside of the box. Um, so, you know, I, I have seen this kind of walk over the years and then with some flags started going up for me. And I think at one point I was reading one of his articles and he said he lost his metaphysic. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what he means by that. And <laughs> I just saw this 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 steady march away from what I would consider to be historic Christianity. And then I guess she put this book out recently. I haven't had the chance to read, but I know you've um, I think you've read it and, and made some comments on it. Would you mind talking us through that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, like you, as a musician, the, the story of the Gungers is of special interest uh, to me because, of course, they've just made such beautiful music songs like Dry Bones and beautiful things that we have probably all sang in our churches at some point. So there has been a bit of an evolution with them. So a few years ago, they they kind of made headlines in the evangelical world. They got they got a lot of evangelical side eye for for revealing on a, in a blog post that uh, well it was Michael Gunger who revealed he no longer believes in Bible stories like a literal Adam and Eve or Noah's Ark and even compared believing in those things to believing in Santa Claus. And so there was just a ton of press and I think their their record sales even took a hit. And uh so you know, for us on the outside, we just got little bits and pieces as time went on. But Lisa's book, um, first of all, is just beautifully written. Uh, I, I really enjoyed reading it. And it was very vulnerable. She was very open about her own faith struggle and even some things she'd been through in the church. And so it was a very valuable read for me because because she was so open. And, and so I just kind of want to say like, like if I criticize her ideas, anybody who's listening, you know, I want to, I, I don't by any means wish to trample on her memories or her perspectives because she was, it was a very valuable book for me because it really showed the progression that somebody could go through, uh, to, to adopt some of these different beliefs. Uh, so, um, the book is called the most beautiful thing I've seen opening your eyes to wonder. And so it sort of tracks their spiritual journey. They went from a real, sounds like a really hyper legalistic fundamentalism, a very Pentecostal type fundamentalism to uh, a more of a progressive type Christianity. And then both of them for a short period of time to atheism. And now finally they've embraced a kind of a wider spirituality that uh, they wouldn't necessarily call Christian. If you listen to some of their podcasts, they, they talk about some of this more in depth, uh, the, and, and Lisa has said in a podcast that she wouldn't necessarily call what she believes now to be Christian. Is that the Liturgist podcast? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. 
she tells the story in the book through through the lens of what she's calling dot line circle. And so she keeps coming back to this metaphor of a dot and then a line and then a circle. And so basically what she's saying is that everybody's kind of born on this dot. You're born in a certain place, in a certain time of history, among certain people, and you're going to just naturally adopt the beliefs of the dot you're born on. And, uh, you know, I agree with her for the most part on that. But then she traces her story as she begins to leave her dot and walk out on uh, this line. And so she sees the line, you know, that if, if your dot is your tribe that you're born into, uh, you, you walk out on this line and it's scary because you're leaving your dot and you're beginning to see the world in a different way. You're beginning to see different perspectives and different people's opinions and religious beliefs and, and all of that stuff. And so just when you start to feel safe on your line, well, that begins to, to disintegrate and then you just fall into this circle. And she describes that circle as the reality underneath and around the reality you see. So in her, in her opinion, the dot and the line weren't really a, there. That was just how you saw the world. You've always been in this circle um, that, you know, is the real world. And so the the problem, though, that I had with, with this metaphor is that really the circle she falls into is pluralism, is is like this relativism. And, and it's a, that is a very specific worldview, you know, because if Christianity is actually true, then that means pluralism is false. And so if that pluralistic circle she fell into is not true, then really she just landed on someone else's dot. You know, the, it's the person who was born into a pluralistic view of religion. And, and so I kind of, I, I didn't really think the metaphor was helpful because you might actually be born on the right dot. I mean, nobody's born on, you know, with everything being correct, but you might actually be one of the people that's born on the dot that got most of it right. And so all of us need to look at other perspectives and other, and then determine whether our dot is true or false. And then, you know, always seek after truth rather than just simply what feels right for us. And, and in a pluralistic kind of all affirming type circle, I don't know. I hope that made sense. Um, but, but she kind of describes some of her journey being influenced more by Eastern uh, spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talks about meditating uh, with Buddha statues at a retreat and then feeling divine feminine arms around her, practicing mindfulness, which, you know, a lot of Christians don't know that mindfulness is actually a meditative practice. That's the seventh step on the Buddhist eightfold path. And, and so it's a very, it's a very Eastern uh, thing. And so what is really interesting is that it's sort of, I I call my review an ode to relativism because that's how the book reads, but it actually ends up bottoming out in absolutism because if you're just trading Christianity for relativism or you're trading Christianity for pluralism, you're just trading one absolute belief for another absolute belief. I mean, you know, and so it, it sort of bottoms out in that way. And in a, in a more recent liturgist podcast episode, she talks about Jesus and she says that, you know, through all of her evolution of belief, she, I I guess that she and Michael have been doing this sort of sensory deprivation therapy where they sit in a tank and, you know, try to, to block everything out. And it was in one of these sessions that she heard a, she called it a non gendered voice of that. She identified as Jesus saying, I've always been with you. 
And so, yeah, so her, her view of, of Jesus is, has changed as well. And now that's very relativistic, you know, whatever, what her mind would create in that situation. And so, um, it, it, yeah, I, I, I don't even know if they would really in any way really be considered Christian anymore. I'm not, of course, God knows who are his and, I'm not going to judge this, the fate of their eternal soul, but from their words and from what they are saying, it really just doesn't seem like that's the path they're on anymore. Can you do me a favor for the listeners who are not familiar with the pluralistic um, worldview? Yeah. Can you unpack that just a little bit? And does she define it the same as the way it's understood um, on a big scale? Right. Well, I don't think in her book she actually came out and said, hey, pluralism is true. Okay. <laughs> but but everything, the way she's framing her new belief system is is what is called religious pluralism. Like the word pluralism just means a bunch of people together, coexisting together. But religious pluralism is a more specific view that would say that there isn't really one religion that gets it all right. Like there, there are many different ways to God and, and the Buddhists find their way to God. The Christians find their way to God. The Hindus have their way to God and all goes to the same place. And, and that is a very, common view actually in progressive Christianity is that uh, this idea that everybody has a seat at God's table and whether they find him through Muhammad or they find him through Jesus or they find him uh, through another religious system, God, you know, we are all God's children and everybody's kind of going to the same place no matter how they get there. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And even as you describe her book, there's something, you know, they really are so good at art and beauty that there's something compelling about oh, it. Yeah. And I think if you weren't if you weren't aware of kind of the epistemology involved in the kind of what you point out the self-refuting nature of it, I could see how tempting it would just be to to kind of, you know, it, I don't know, it just has such existential pull, even as you describe it. It sure does. That is so true. And then even in reading the book, just the way she were, she's such a good writer and such an, a vulnerable writer. And, and anytime someone's a great writer and a vulnerable writer, you pull, you feel pulled right in. You feel like you're experiencing it right there with them. She, she talks about laying on the trampoline as a little girl and watching the raindrops pool and, and then fall through the bottom. And then she relates that. And it's just, honestly, it's a beautiful book, but that's almost what makes it more dangerous than anything else, because it is so compelling the way she talks about this dot, this line and the circle, like, that is something you can, everybody can relate to. You can relate to, to being raised in your, you know, with your parents' views on things like regarding politics. I didn't know why I vote, you know, wanted to vote a certain way when I got old enough, but it's because my parents voted that way. You know, everybody can relate with that. And so, um, you know, so I, so I really get that, but it's, it's sort of the, the end of it that, it's just really like she's not falling into the big circle. She's just falling onto someone else's dot. Right. Wow. That's good. And I think that's the point. It, it gives away the game from the beginning of what reality is really like. And does, does she give an argument for thinking that reality is the circle? Or is it more of like a, no, a she's, journey? It's, it's a journey. And, and that's the thing, too. Um, that probably is worth mentioning when we talk about progressive Christianity is that there, there is definitely a side of progressive Christianity that's 
you know, really intellectual and rooted in scholarship and things like that. But a lot of it is just uh, anecdotal. It's your experience and what you think about things. And there's not really a call to, to defend what you believe, but just you believe it. And so we affirm it because we affirm you. And, and so that's, that's the hardest thing. Like I, I actually have interactions with atheists and progressive Christian Christians with on my blog and the atheists are almost sometimes easier to talk to because they at least affirm the same laws of logic that I do. You know, like you can, you can point out logical fallacies, but sometimes with progressive Christians, that's not even the right approach because a lot of times they're reacting from abuse they've experienced or some kind of a really legalistic cult-like mentality they grew up in. And they don't really care about your logical fallacy at that point, Mm. you know, and, and you can understand that. Uh, So, so there's, there's all kinds of different sort of things to consider when you're ministering to a progressive Christian or talking with a progressive Christian is really the, you know, in apologetics, we talk about the question behind the question. And that's not to say that there aren't atheists that are that way too. But a lot of times I have just found that atheists deal more in facts. And uh, I mean, they've got their emotions as well, but they'll, they'll try to bring up a bunch of facts. Whereas in progressive Christian, it's more like how something affected them. And, and so that can be a little bit of a difficult uh, thing to navigate. So, as an apologist, when you come across progressive Christians, either on an individual level or in a group, how do you go about starting that conversation? Well, it's, you know, that's that's tough because I think each situation is different. There are people who have been so hurt and so abused that it just isn't the time to do anything but listen and and empathize um and just love you know and then there's other times when it isn't so emotionally charged and there might be an opportunity to make a suggestion or uh you know i think asking questions is always a really good way to go about conversations of course i'm sure you're familiar with greg kokel's book tactics and it sounds like, uh, you know, tactics sounds like such a military word or something like that. But really the heart behind that book is not to always try to win arguments, but just to try to put a little pebble in someone's shoe. You know, if you can do that, if you can just ask a question that will really bother them and make them think, because um, that's honestly when the most changes come in my life is when somebody's done that for me. They've just asked me a really annoying question that I can't stop thinking about. And then I, and then it, it forces me to go study and figure out what I think about it. And so, um, I think, I think asking a well-placed question and a a great question is how did you come to that conclusion? Mm -hmm. Uh, that's That's a question that Greg Kogel talks about in his book is, is, you know, just basically a lot of people have just caught beliefs from the culture around them without really thinking through why they believe that's true. So sometimes if somebody makes a claim like, um, you know, oh, this is one I hear all the time. Christians don't care about the poor. You know, conservative Christians haven't done anything for the poor, which is, you know, that's demonstrably false, but that's not going to matter to them. So maybe rather than saying, well, that's not true. And here's all the examples of Christians who have done amazing, you know, work throughout history. Maybe a better question is, 
what what makes you come to that conclusion? Why why do you think that? And typically there won't be an answer or they might just have their very small circle of experience to defend that. And maybe that's a little pebble that that can be in the shoe. They can think a little more about that. So I feel like anecdotally, we've talked a lot about on this podcast about progressive Christianity and, and critical theory and all that, is Christians wanting to not hate on people groups like LGBT or, or take a strong stance on abortion. Do you find that the, the two things, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but those kinds of social issues is one motivation, and another large motivation for Christians going this route is like suffering and the issue of, of why do bad things happen with good people. Uh, do you feel like those are two big topics for Christians going this route? And in regards to suffering, if that is, do you have a, an answer that you give to those Christians? Yeah, those are definitely, I think, two big motivators. In the progressive Christians I've talked to or people who are being tempted by that world, um, they are questioning the goodness of God. Uh, you know, especially in light of some of the things that have have come to light recently about abuses in the church. You know, how could God right. just sit there and let that happen? Yeah. Um, and and again, that's the kind of thing as far as answering that that you have to take each situation as it comes. And that person might not really even be looking for an answer; they just want a hug. You know. Right. Um, and, and I think that's something that's probably honestly difficult for all of us to think through. But then, so what I can offer sometimes if it's the right situation is how I think through that situation. Because if that was my daughter who had been abused by a youth pastor, let's say, hmm. you know, how am I going to think through that question? Well, God, how could you be with her and, and watch that happen? Well, then I would have to ask, well, do I expect him to stop every single one of those situations. Well, then what about half? Do I expect him to stop at least half of them or, or maybe a third of them? Okay. What about just one? And then if you, if you say, okay, I want God to stop every single one of those. Well, then what about lesser abuses? Do you want him to stop every single one of those? And then if you keep following that logic down pretty soon, you don't have free will anymore. And, and it's, I mean, I think that the problem of evil, the problem of suffering is not it is it's something that people just are going to see it one way or the other like i i've known christians who have been through terrible suffering who have been sexually abused as children who have been uh through spiritual abuse who have been through all kinds of horrible things who love god and believe he's good and then i know others that have been through similar things and they struggle with his goodness and uh so Sometimes I think it's okay to say, I don't know why some people respond one way or the other. Uh, like take Corey Ten Boom. If there's anybody in the world who has a reason to think, you know, to question God's goodness, it would be her who went to the Nazi concentration camps. Her entire family died, watched her sister die, uh, was horribly abused and and survived and spent the rest of her life telling people how good God is. So <clears throat> I think it's just one of those things that we need to approach very sensitively and not try to give a canned answer to, but to allow people space to wrestle through that stuff and to be compassionate about it. And then, you know, here and there, just, just offer some light that people can take or not take. That's so good. And and let me just take this moment to compliment uh, listening to a few of your podcasts. I think that's something you do so well, even as you critique an article or a book by another author, you've 
just led with just such grace and truth. Well, and so yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, and I, as you're sharing that answer, I am thinking of this culture that we live in that right now has become increasingly just um, so self-affirming, self-aware, self-actualization, um, all of the the self-affirming um, things that we're, we're swimming in right now. And I think that mm-hmm. also is um, another luring and an attraction for the progressive Christianity because it's like you can't, I think you mentioned earlier that it's it's all about the person's experience, but then that's such a hard balance against the Christian um way where it says you know it's it's not about the self it's not it's right. uh, it's about self-denial it's about you taking your life into the kingdom and so how do you kind of um come across uh, conversations that way when people you know you you mentioned that it, people are hurting and people are um there's a lot of suffering but even those who aren't suffering who are just attracted mm-hmm. to the progressive um christianity is 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 it a, a turnoff is Christianity a turnoff because it it does require a lot of um, denial, self denial. Yeah, and that actually really hits at a core question, or I, I shouldn't. It's not really a question, but a core difference between historic Christians and progressive Christians is generally speaking. Now, again, I always try to qualify what I say with terms like generally speaking, because you're going to find progressive Christians who would consider themselves progressive who still believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Um, but I'm, generally speaking, uh, progressive Christians don't believe that we, in the doctrine of original sin, that we were all born with a sin nature. And and so, in fact, there, there were progressive sermon series and even books that talk about uh, original goodness, not original sin. And so if you start with that foundation, you can see why a progressive Christian would think your idea of self-denial and, you know, they think that's just nuts. Why do you all think you're so bad? You're beautiful. God yeah. made you and called you good. You're affirmed. You're beautiful. That was kind of the the one of the foundations of Nadia Bolt's Weber Weber's book on sexuality, stop Mm. feeling ashamed. You are already holy, she says. Mm. You're already good in God's eyes. And so it's sort of this complete 180 from what Christians have historically believed about human nature. And, And so it just doesn't even compute for most progressive Christians because they don't see us as inherently evil, as depraved people in need of a savior to cleanse us from our sin. You know, they, they would actually, there, there have been blog posts written by progressive Christian pastors saying that if you teach that to children, it's psychologically damaging. And so, um, yeah, it, it really, it, it's a tough message, but I think something kind of switched for me about last September. Uh, I wrote a post, it was it was a critique of a book that I did not even realize how wildly popular this book was, but it, it's uh, Rachel Hollis, Girl, Wash Your Face. And that, I had seen it in Costco, that's about all I knew about it. And so I read the book and I reviewed it and it went viral. And it's actually that post is the reason I ended up with a book deal and I'm writing a book right now. So I'm very thankful for the reaction to that post, but the reaction was tremendous and it was split in half. There was nobody who was neutral about this Mm -hmm. review. And in the review, in the review, I talk about how her message is to affirm yourself. And the Bible says to deny yourself basically. And then talked about the gospel. And, and I realized when I received such, I have a, I mean, I have now a folder on my computer that I put all my hate mail in and then I have, a folder, you know, and then I, I have the, the good, but it was the, it was amazing 
how split the reaction was. There was no neutral reaction. I either got emails where people were weeping with thanks for being such a balm to their soul to being called, um, you know, curse words and people literally cussing me out in email uh, for being judgmental and and a horrible Christian, and maybe one day I'll really find God. I mean, it was crazy, the reaction. And I realized this is exactly what the Bible says. This is exactly how it says people react to the gospel. Paul wow. said, to Come some, on. it's the stench of death, and to some, it's the fragrance of life. And so I realized in that moment, I think before that I had been trying to change people's minds like, you know, no, it's it's actually beautiful that God saved us from our sin. And I think I'm at the point where I realize now that that message is going to be the fragrance of life Ooh. to some and it's going to be the stench of death to others. And our job is to give the message in the most persuasive and charitable and loving way we can but to to speak the message. And to some people, it's going to stink. And to other people, it's going to be beautiful. And the only difference between those two groups of people, and I, I was talking with a friend about this yesterday, is you either, I either think I'm a sinner or I don't. And that's what it all comes down to. Mm. Because if I know that I'm a sinner, then I know I need a savior. And then I will always be in awe of grace. But if I really actually just kind of think I'm basically a good person, <laughs> then that message of blood and and sin and all that, that's going to stink to me. And so, uh, I, yeah, I didn't mean to get off on a sermon there. No, that's, that's great. Good. <laughs> it's so what good. it comes down to is, am I a sinner or am I not? And I will tell you both right now, I am a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I know what the things that I've done. I know what God has forgiven me of. Even after I was a Christian, the things that, that I am grieved over, that he has forgiven me and given me his grace. And, and, and that's honestly, I think, what it all comes down to. Wow. So good. Yeah, that's really good. I think we touched on that last week, too, a little bit, where we said, you know, the good news can't really be understood except for in light of the bad news. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right. Um, that's so good. And I think this modern progressive movement, Christian mu movement, and just in general, our culture, it's getting more and more hard to preach the bad news. And yes. sin, is, it, it sin really is not a category, is. you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because all of the messages around us are follow your heart. Your heart is good, so follow it. Yes. You know, follow your dreams. Your dreams are good, so follow them. You're good. You're awesome. You're beautiful. Believe in yourself. Self-love. You know, all of this stuff. So we've been so inundated with this message that we are just adorable to God. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and it's really hard to, to help people you know, in this culture. And that's where we just, we rely on the Holy Spirit to bring that conviction to mm -hmm. each heart yeah. and, uh, and, but do what we can to, to give the message and not hold back from speaking it in its full truth. Wow. Well, um, couple, couple questions. One here, have you had any experience of people that were identifying as progressive Christians who have come back to the historic faith, um, through either something, your ministry or just people you're aware of that have been helped to come back to that process? And if so, what is that, what was that like for them? I don't know many, mm. to be honest with you. I have had a couple of emails from people who said that the first kind of Christianity they encountered was progressive Christianity. Somebody had given them a Rob Bell book and that was the door toward Christianity that they took. And then they, you know, after starting that journey, they discovered Orthodox Christianity and and rejected that that progressive Christianity. Uh, but more often than not, 
the the and I think this can be shown through a lot of there's there's the airing of grief podcast, the exvangelicals. There's all kinds of uh, platforms where people are airing these kinds of stories. But I think that if progressive Christians are going in any direction, they're not generally coming back to an orthodox faith, but they're heading more toward atheism. And uh, the, there are a lot of people who will say, in fact, I after I wrote this post for the Gospel Coalition about similarities in belief between them, I got emails and comments from several atheists saying that that's exactly my journey. I did go through a progressive uh, type of Christianity before going all the way to atheism. Mm. And, and that's the journey of, you know, famously skeptical New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman. He went through a phase of progressive Christianity before he went to atheism. Same with, uh, Bart Campolo, uh, son of the, the speaker, Tony Campolo. He went through a very liberal progressive phase before finally just affirming secular humanism. And, and he would even say that's actually the more honest, thing. Because if you're going to start changing all of these core doctrines, uh, you, you might as well just call it what it is. And that, that's his argument. And, and I think there's some merit to it. Wow. It does become a bit of a slippery slope, doesn't it? Once you get rid of the biblical authority, it, it's like standing on the side of a hill on a slip and slide. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> so in your view, how do we what do you think the best approach is? And I know we talked a little bit about this in the last episode, but how do we help people prepare them so they're not kind of taken in by this movement? Um, well, before we go there, is this a? Do you feel like this is a mass movement? Is it growing in numbers? Or, or is it something we can say kind of optimistically? Ah, it's not really affecting the church that much. Or is this really having a major impact? Well, that's an interesting question. I think it's having a major impact. I'm seeing conservative, otherwise, I, I hate to use the word conservative because that can mean different things to different people. So I'll just, I'll try to stick with historic or orthodox Christianity. But I'm seeing these ideas everywhere. People send me emails about their otherwise orthodox historic churches that are, that are brought this teacher in or something like that. And I think it's hugely influential. It's influential in the music business, as we all know. Yeah. And uh, I'm seeing it it really impacting, although statistics are showing the more liberal mainline denominations decreasing in popularity. So I don't know quite what to make of all of that, except that I can just see it happening before my eyes. And I'm watching friends get swept up in this. I, I'm seeing... Uh, all I'm seeing teachers get swept up in this, well-known Christian teachers, and not having the discernment to be able to see those ideas and, and pick them apart and say, hey, we're going to take a stand against this. To, to that answer, I don't know if you saw the news about the Methodist General Conference uh, where they voted. I did, And yes. uh, there's some very large churches in the Methodist denomination now considering breaking off from Methodism to form their own thing that affirms LGBT. Do you see that as kind of the same thing, a progressive Christianity eking into those more uh, mainline denominations? And is that a problem for them too? Yeah, a lot of progressive Christians do attend those mainline uh, denominations. Now, Rachel Held Evans became Episcopalian. And uh, so you do see a lot of uh, progressives just being honest and saying, hey, I'm not an evangelical anymore, which I think is good. I think people should be really honest about where they're at and what they believe. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't I don't quite know what to make of, of the statistics saying those mainlines are decreasing because in, it seems like 
like the progressives are are filling the pews there and even forming their own churches and, and things like that. But I definitely don't think it's going anywhere. And I think it is massively influential. I, I feel pretty safe to say to say that, that obviously these books wouldn't be written and continue to be written if they weren't selling. And uh, just going on Facebook, I can see the influence of, of these ideas all over the place. Uh, so, so I think it's it's something that Christians need. We can't be ostriches and hide our heads in the sand. We have to we have to face this and know that it is happening. In your dealings with um, those who are being attracted to progressive Christianity, is it all across the board, demographically, age wise, or uh, culture? What are you sensing in your interaction? Well, I will be bold here <laughs> and say that I I think from and way back. Going back to the German scholars in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, it's it's a largely affluent and white okay. idea. Okay. And and this is something I kind of defended in one of my blog posts uh, where I reviewed Rachel Held Evans's book because she always makes these points that you know it's the old white guys that are the problem. Mm, this is the this yeah. is the who we are all listening to, and that's why we're all here. But if you go anywhere in the world, I know missionaries all over that go all over the world, and they will tell you that these churches all over the world are fighting against progressive Christianity. They would not accept this doctrine. They they get the gospel, and um, in fact, I'm I'm actually looking on my blog because I want to find this um, quote that I have from Tim Keller, uh, who talks about you know pastoring in a rich area of New York. Okay. And and it's really in the more rich and affluent areas that people adopt more progressive theology. So he says it's it's found in the center of the privileged classes. But when he goes to the inner city churches and I've had some experience working in inner city churches too where the oppressed and marginalized actually are, he says it's frankly it's a more supernatural Christianity. They talk about the blood, they talk about miracles, they talk about the resurrection. And and I have a friend who is a, a missionary and uh, uh, he goes all over. I'm trying to find where he goes. Ah well, I didn't write it down, but he, but he he goes into these places that not a lot of people can even go, and he says the Christians there would absolutely reject this gospel. They, they it has nothing for them, and so yeah. And there's a, actually a book by a scholar named David Young that's I think it just came out. I got to review it before it came out, but he makes a whole case about how all of this liberal theology that influences the progressive church is really largely affluent white based. And so this whole idea that the progressives are the ones that are speaking to the oppressed and the marginalized, I, I would challenge that personally. So what do we do? And I know you're engaged in this work specifically. What what are some things we can do as historic Christians to help prepare people so they're not taken captive by these ideas? Well, the first thing we're going to have to start doing is being brave. Like we have to be brave to preach the whole gospel. Preach it, girl. We we are living in a time where it is incredibly unpopular to talk about blood and sacrifice and hell and heaven and all of these things. And Christians, we need to be brave. And I promise you, if you are, if you speak the truth of the gospel, you will get made fun of, you will get slaughtered online, but you will have 
the pleasure of God by speaking the truth of his word. And that's all that matters. And I think we just need to get back to that headspace that we, what we do as Christians is for God alone, come what may. And, and if people are going to accept it or reject it, that's on God, but it's our job to lovingly out of love to, to preach this message. And I think the second thing that I would just urge pastors to start teaching the Bible again and the whole Bible. You know, don't just pick a topic and find some verses that go with that topic, but people don't know the Bible. That's why, Seth, when you mentioned people don't even really know what the essentials are. I I would bet if you would ask the average Christian on the street, what is the gospel? You're going to get a million different answers. And I don't think people know the difference between uh, an, a core essential doctrine like the resurrection of Jesus and something that's a little more on the outskirts, like the relationship between divine sovereignty and uh, you know, free will. I think it's all mixed together in this big jumble. And if pastors and if churches would get back to, to just teaching the Bible, I think that we would see a lot of this problem be solved. Hmm. You got me refraining from shouting right. out in my living room right now. I love it. It's you so can good. Shout. Yes. Man, okay, one question for you. Um, you're a wife, apologist, mom, traveler, speaker. How is life for you? How is how are you balancing all of this? Keeping the passion, keeping the main thing the main thing, but still um, glorifying God in all you do. Yeah. Well, it you know, it's hard. I think it's hard for all of us. In fact, sure. I, I I go out and I walk my dog in the morning and that's when I pray. And I was talking to the Lord this morning and I said, God, it is hard to be a Christian in Spring Hill, Tennessee. And it, the second I said it, I thought so, I felt so convicted because I think about all my Christian brothers and sisters all over the world who are persecuted and all this. And then I was like, no, I mean it. It's hard. I have food. I have all the food I want. Mm. I have a warm bed to sleep and I have a beautiful, ridiculously beautiful house. I've got healthy kids. I've got all of this privilege. I've got all of these things. And those things make it hard to give you all of my time to, to want to pray, to want to just dive into wow. your word. Like all these distractions, Netflix and TV and computers and all of that is like the, the, the affluence that we live in makes it hard to be a real Christian. And, and I'm not, you know, that's not a sob story. That's sure. I'm convicting for myself because there are just so many distractions. And so that's, that's something that I really try to, to pray like, God, you know, do whatever you got to do in my life to make me fall to my knees and depend on you. I want to do that, you know, and that's a scary thing to pray. Um, but, but as far as balancing things, you know, interestingly, life is fairly quiet for me right now, believe it or not. Um, I'm in the process of writing a book uh, on progressive Christianity, and the book will be my journey, basically. It's my story. It's memoirish, but it will address all of the theological points. So my goal is for someone to read the book and have walked through my journey with me, but actually have learned some theology without realizing they learned theology. <laughs> so yes. um, so that's that's what I'm working on right now. I'm doing a limit, very limited number of uh, speaking dates. I'm trying to be really choosy right now because the most important thing is that I honor God as a wife and as a mother. And so both my kids are in school right now. So when they're in school, that's my office hours. And and then I try, I just ask God to um, equip me to be a great mom when they're home and not be distracted by all this stuff. Because it is, I, I am the kind of person 
that when I get on something, it's very hard to not think about it all the time. Sure. And so just asking God to bring that balance to my life. And I, I don't always do a great job of it, but I'm trying and I'm, he's working in me and I'm just, I'm trying to do my part. That's Amen. all. I'm just trying to do what he's called me to do. And it's very fulfilling when that happens. I, I think it's the first time in my life where I actually am doing something that I go, man, I just, this is so fulfilling for me, even more than music, interestingly. Um, but so I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to honor him in all I do. That's, I can so relate. That's so good. Thank you for your honesty and just your realness. Let me just applaud you. You're killing it. And we're so inspired to find your ministry. So thanks for that. Thank you. Thank you. Alisa, thanks so much for joining us on the Free Mind Podcast. And I want to encourage our listeners, we're going to have all the links to the articles and the reviews that Alisa has for the Gunger book, Rob Bell. Uh, they're all going to be in the show notes. And we encourage you to go to elisachilders.com. That link will also be in the show notes. And you can read her articles there, listen to her podcast, and again, look for that upcoming book. Again, thank you, Elisa, for joining us. And uh, we hope to see you again soon. Oh, I loved it. Thanks so much for having me on today, guys. Change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too.